I love uh, powerful halftime speeches. <clears throat> Uh, especially if a team is, they're losing, and for whatever reason, the, TV's let, or the team lets the TV into the, the locker room for the halftime speech, where the coach is going to passionately lay into his team so that when they go out for the second half, they come back and win. I love those speeches. The only problem is the only sport I really played competitively um, on into high school was golf. I'm best, betting you've never uh, heard of a halftime golf inspirational speech until now. It was my freshman year uh, of high school golf. We were playing in our county tournament, and it was a two-day tournament. At the end of the first day, we, were, we did not play well. We were losing. And we were losing to our, our arch rival, the Avon Orioles. And we were playing on their, their home course, and we're down by a lot. And, and, and so we, we go home, we leave. We come back the second day. The whole drive, our coach does not say a thing to us. And we all pile out of the van. Um, and there in the golf parking lot... Twin Bridges Golf Club in Indiana, uh, our coach gave us what may be the only halftime speech a golf team has ever received. And he reminded us at that point, this is, you are Brownsburg High School golfers. We've won this tournament 15 years in a row. We do not lose to Avon. He said many things. I don't know if you've ever been yelled at in a golf parking lot before, but golf courses are very quiet places. And so if there's someone yelling, like, like anywhere on the entire course. You hear it on the entire course, let alone the parking lot. And he just, he laid into us. He said many things um, about that. And ultimately, it, it worked. We went out there, because ultimately what the speech was about is, hey, remember who you are. You're Brownsburg High School golfers, which that may not mean anything to you, but it means a lot to me. And so we went, I just, we just walked out there. I mean, I was a freshman. It was like one of my first tournaments. Walked out there with swagger, with confidence, with arrogance, even though we played terribly the day before. And we went out and we came back. Avon crumbled like they always do. And we came back. We won the tournament. I love those speeches. And I was the recipient. That was the only, that was the only inspirational speech I ever got in the midst of, of golf. But, but it, was just, it was a simple speech of remember who you are. And now go out and, and play like it. Live like it. And uh, this may be a bit of a stretch, but uh, that's, that, is, that is actually what Paul is saying in Philippians 2, is you are people in the way of Jesus, you are Christians, remember that, now go live like it. And this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, one of the most, kind of, most quoted and, and I think difficult to understand phrases in the New Testament, that's what Paul means, is now go out and live your salvation. So we're going to do a pretty simple two-point sermon this morning around what Paul's saying, which is, okay, remember who you are, remember your, who you are as Christian, and then go and live like it. So first, remember who you are. So as I mentioned, you probably, this phrase may be familiar to, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's, it's pretty well known. So what, what does Paul mean by that? Because uh, what it can sound like is, it, what that means is, okay, you better go and now earn your place before God. You better work it out and prove your salvation before God. Is, is that what Paul means? In the reality, we need two other things Paul's already said to frame what he means by this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first is in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Philippians, where Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's already said the salvation God has given to you, he started that work, and God will finish it in you. So when Paul says, work out your salvation in fear, with fear and trembling, he's not saying, and the end is in doubt. The end is not in, in doubt. If you're in the way of Jesus, 
He will finish what he started with you. Which should give you confidence to, to work out your salvation. And that's how Paul even qualifies this statement in verse 13 when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your, fear, your salvation because God's working with you in it. He's going to finish what he started in you. He's working alongside you even now. So that, that's one important phrase, I think, to qualify what Paul means. The other is in verse 27 uh, of chapter 1. And, and most commentators would say, verse 27 of chapter 1 of Philippians actually begins a section that goes all the way down to the end of our passage for this morning, to chapter 18. So Paul says in, in verse 27 of chapter 1, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then from 127 down through 218, Paul begins to lay out what that means. What is a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? And Paul tells us what that's worth. So Paul is, is calling back to how he began the section by saying, you are to live a life worthy of the name of Jesus. Therefore, work that out. Work that out into your life. What it means that you have been captured by the gospel of Christ. Now go and put that into your Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of your life. It's really to ask the question, is your life worthy of the name of Jesus? Worthy of the gospel of Christ? And that's one of the promises we talk a lot about in Revelation. At the end of Revelation, we find that the believer has God's name written on our forehead. That's an, like, it's just a stunning reality that God like, get, associates with us, gives us his name. The first name on our building outside is Christ Community. We bear the name of Jesus. So are our lives, is this community worthy of the name of Jesus? I'm going to work that out with, uh, with an illustration. A few years ago, uh, our elder at the time, Mitch Holtis, let me go and, and serve as uh, in the radio booth during the, the Colts and Chiefs uh, game a few years ago. <clears throat> um, I grew up in Indianapolis, which meant I was a Colts fan, so I had family there, so it made sense. My whole family made the trek, and I got to serve in the, the booth with, with him as a spotter, which basically what that meant was when someone made a tackle, because we're a long way away, I, I would point at someone on the, uh, on the sheet so Mitch would know who the tackle was made, but I quickly found that he actually, he didn't really need me. Like, he saw everything. It was incredible. And it almost felt like take your kid to work day. Like, I was just there, and I would, like, point at something. He's like, good work, buddy. You know, it's like, that's sort of what it felt like. <clears throat> but I was there, and I got to, you know, I got to see things from behind the scenes. It was, it was a lot of fun. And after the game, so the, the, Chief, the Colts actually, uh, the Chiefs beat the Colts that day, so I got to go into the locker room with Mitch. And he, the, the reality is the only reason I got to go into that locker room was because I was with Mitch Fultis. There's no other reason I, they'd let me in. And so I'm in there, and of course, the whole time I'm in there, I'm a little bit nervous, because I mean, all the players are right, are right there, and I'm, I'm, I recognize, like, everything I do reflects directly on Mitch. Right? So I didn't, get, I didn't grab a towel and go snap Travis Kelsey and be like, good game, buddy. I didn't do that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't stand up uh, on a chair and be like, I just want you all to know, I'm actually, like, I'm a Colts fan, and what you did today deeply offended me and my family, and I'm angry, so go enjoy the rest of your day. I didn't do, I, I, I very much understood, like, I'm there for one reason, I, because of Mitch. And it, like, it is, it should stun us to no end that, that God, like, in his son Jesus, chooses to associate with us. And, like, actually, his mission 
in the world is dependent on us. I mean, in one sense, it's not. He's God. He doesn't need us. But in another sense, Jesus actually said the way that the world's going to become convinced that I'm actually the Messiah and the Father sent me into the world is going to be the way that you guys love one another. Like, it's some, I don't know, like, how this all works out. God's sovereign, and yet he's put his mission in, in our hands. So is your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, the name that you have been given? And so when Paul says, work your salvation out with fear and trembling, what, he, what he, he means by fear and trembling is not, hey, God's up in heaven and he's like watching you and he's, you better do it well and he's going to judge you relentlessly every time. That's not what it means. It's actually a reference back to an Old Testament phrase, a Hebrew phrase, and it means more awe. Like you should work out your salvation in awe of the fact that you have the name Jesus as your own. And when you go to work tomorrow, you should go to work in awe of the fact that you've been given the name Jesus and you've, you're going into that place as a representative and a, um, a brother of the Messiah of the universe. As you parent your kids, as you enter into your, your deepest friendships, as you go about your marriage, as you live in your neighborhood, as we live in this community, as we as a community represent the name of, of Jesus, it should, it should stun us to no end that we actually are, that we bear the name Jesus. And we should be asking continually, is my life worthy of that? Again, not in a legalistic, always feel bad about yourself way, but in, in awe. Like, I'm in the Chiefs locker room. Like, this is incredible. Like, this is amazing, right? Like, there's all these, all the players are, are right. That you and I walk into a world with the name Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of the universe. Work that out tomorrow. Work that out this afternoon. What does that mean into all of your life? So that, remember who you are. You have the name Jesus. You get to go work that out into your life. Secondly, what, what does that look like? Let's actually get specifically, or specific. What does it mean to live who we are? And Paul does get specific. And he names four things uh, about what it would look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the first thing he says is do all things without grumbling or disputing. The first way you bear the name of Jesus is that you're not a grumbler and you're not a disputer. I think that's interesting because we, we live in a, what many have called an age of deconstruction. And that works its way out in a number of, of ways. But we have, a, we have a cultural value of tearing down things, of, of picking apart leaders and their failures, of mistrusting institutions in the ways that they fail us. And of course, there's, there's a, actually a healthy needed element to that, but we've taken it to an extreme. And once we see a failure or a fault, we name it, we claim it, and we dunk on that person relentlessly. So we name what's wrong now, not to to deepen community or to love one another. We name what's wrong often just to prove our own rightness or our own selves in the midst of the moment. And this is playing itself out in the church in a really unique way through, through deconstruction of, of faith. So if you, if you're, if you follow any of, of Christian presence on social media, you know there's a number of, of high prof, formerly high-profile Christian leaders in the last five, six, seven years who have deconverted in very public Ways And often what they do is they say, I'm not a Christian anymore, and here's why. And they deconstruct Christianity, and they, they, tear it, um, they tear it down, often critiquing it. 
not critiquing it from a sense of actually like the very very means by which you're critiquing are actually like all Jesus things for the most part. There's some, certainly some exceptions, but there's no there's no sense of what what's being replaced or what's better, but just a, a tearing down. And I, I've experienced that in my own life. I'm I'm someone who just sort of has the personality bent of seeing what's wrong in, in something very easily, what the problems are in. In something, and when I was in campus ministry, I felt like we were, I was on the front end of some of these these trends. And there were a couple of, of writers, popular authors, pastors, who were really well known within our own campus ministry that guys read that concerned me because my own sense was the trajectory of those writers, authors was towards not being Christian anymore. And ultimately proved right in, in those 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 two cases. But in interacting with with the the, the the students within the campus ministry who I was just a couple years older than, often what I would do is I would just I would spend most of my time deconstructing and critiquing what was wrong instead of building and leading and pointing to what is good and right. So instead of like reading Augustine or reading the Gospels or reading historic Orthodox Christian writings and the, the rich tradition we have, we'd read those books of the deconstructors and I would just try to deconstruct the deconstructors and it, it just didn't work. That ultimately we need to move beyond just being critiquers. And actually being people who build. That anybody can grumble and dispute and point out what's wrong with something. Very few people can see what's wrong and instead of just naming what's wrong, actually build something that's right. A.J. Swoboda has written a, a really good book on this trend within our own culture. It's called After Doubt. And in that, in that book he says, The building is harder, more time-consuming, and requires more intentionality than critique. Right, it's easy to look at someone else and be like, you did that in a way that wasn't perfect. Because everything we do is done in a way that's not perfect. Which means there's always opportunity for critique, for deconstruction. And that's why building is so much harder. And yeah, I want to be clear, like, it doesn't mean we never critique. I recognize right now I am critiquing the critiquers. So I recognize my own hypocrisy in this, and yet I, I believe the salvation of Jesus was not given to you and me so that we can go around relentlessly pointing out what's wrong, absurd, and broken in our world. The salvation of Jesus was not given to us to tear down, but to build. To build in our own small way, along with the work of God, the, the kingdom of God in this world. To be a community that represents the kingdom of God to our world. As you go individually into your workplaces tomorrow, to build a vision of the kingdom of God out of your own life. To work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not just telling everyone what is wrong about what's around them. That we live in a culture that disputes everything. That tears down Everything that finds something wrong in everything and wants to live in that space. And my guess is if you're a leader in your own right, like you've, you've experienced that, it's exhausting. Hey, you didn't do this perfectly. It's like, well, yeah, that's, I don't know that I ever have, right? It's, and there's always something to be named that is wrong. And so as, as someone who, as a, as a disciple of Jesus, if you bear the name of Jesus into this world, are you doing more tearing down right now or building? Amen. We are disputing about so much as a culture right now, right? When it comes to disputations about race, are you tearing more down or are you building something in what's broken in its place? This is a time where there's a lot of division in politics. Are you tearing 
down or are you building something in its place? Obviously, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Are you tearing down or are you building something in its place? Are you known more for being a grumbler and a disputer or someone contributing, offering something good and beautiful to the world? Paul says, um, do a few things without grumbling. No, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And again, that doesn't mean we don't critique or, or dispute or there aren't things wrong in the world. However, I hope we are not just one more culture or one more community within this culture that carries around hostility, argumentativeness, and a desire to dunk on our enemies. So first, uh, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Secondly, Paul says, we as Christians work out our salvation into this world by shining as lights. And the image he uses is, is sort of imagine a dark sky, and there's these bright stars in the midst of darkness that shine out and provide a contrast to, to the darkness. And he says, when we work salvation, when we work the gospel out into our lives, we become people who shine in a different way in the midst of a dark reality. And so there's a lot of ways you can do that. And what's beautiful about, to me, the Christian faith is not that we all have the same gifts. We're all going to shine in our own, like in our own, or we're all going to shine in the same way. Actually, like it's going to look very unique depending on how God is, has made you. And yet I do think there's one Christian practice that I do think is particularly important for us in this moment to shine as lights in the midst of a dark world. And that is the practice of hospitality. Many of you may be familiar with the story of Rosaria Butterfield, who um, had a pretty dramatic conversion um, story. She has a couple of books she's written, The Secret, Likes, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Co Convert, and then The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And her story is basically she was uh, a professor of critical theory at Syracuse, very hostile to Christianity um, uh, in, in many, many ways, wrote a local op-ed for their local paper, which was, was very anti-Christian, and then she received what she refers to as the most interesting piece of hate mail she ever got, which was a, a reformed pastor wrote her back basically to say, I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. But in all the letters, either of saying you're brilliant and you're right, and letters many, many times from professed Christians that were very hateful and angry, in the middle of all that, a letter shone as light in the midst of a dark world of this interesting piece of hate mail, which was a reformed pastor saying, I think you're wrong. Why don't we have dinner together? And so her, um, she went into, uh, into this Reformed pastor's home. And over days, weeks, years of meals, she converted into the way of Jesus, became a Christian through hospitality to a table. Just how different that is to our own moment. Think of the, the ideological opponents and how people tend to treat them, how they speak of them. And what would it look like for us to, to, to provide an alternative way of, of being in a world of hostility? Instead of just being one more community that has hostility towards those who disagree with us, we actually open our tables, our homes, our lives to them. Read through the Gospels. That was a key practice of Jesus. One commentator refers to the Gospel of Luke as basically like Jesus just ate with a lot of people. That's what he did. Which sounds way more fun than dunking on people online. But in the book... Rosaria Butterfield, she writes this. And to be clear, she's a pretty, uh, she's a pretty, she's an instigator, the way she writes. I'm just going to put it that way. And she's very direct with what she says. 
She says this in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Having strong, words and, having strong words and a weak relationship with your neighbor is violent. It captures the violent carelessness of our social media-infused age. That is not how neighbors talk with each other. That is not how image bearers of the same God relate to one another. Radically ordinary hospitality values the time it takes to invest in relationships, to build bridges, to repent of sins of the past, to reconcile. Bridge building and remaking friendships cannot be rushed. What if in in this moment of, of incredible darkness and hostility and division, people in the way of Jesus were known for our open tables, our open homes, our open lives? What if the distinctive mark of, of Christians, and maybe that can just be our community because we can't control every church, every Christian, but at least for our community, the thing we would be known for in Shawnee is, is their homes are open, their tables are open, their lives are open to the world around them. It's not a community of hostility, it's a community of hospitality. Again, there's lots of ways you can, your own life can shine as a light in the midst of a dark world. That's one way forward. What, what might be yours? In your own giftedness, in your own calling. So that's two. Paul says, work out your salvation. Be a person that shines like light in a dark world. Don't be a person who grumbles and disputes. Thirdly, he says, to do that, you need to hold fast to the word of life. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of, of life. And the word of life is probably just another phrase for the gospel. Uh, we hold fast to the gospel. If you want to walk in the manner worthy of Jesus, you need to hold fast to his gospel, to his story, to his narrative. Which means in many ways, like the, the script from last week, the, the sermon from last week with Joseph preached, like we, you, you need, we need to keep going back there. Which, I mean, is like, that is an insane idea. That the son of God, actually, that he even died at all for us. But the fact that he, he emptied himself of his rights, prerogatives, his claims to divinity to be, to be a servant. And that's, that's, that is crazy. <laughs> and First Peter says, angels long to look into the gospel. Because they're like, this is crazy. And they're not even the ones who received it. Like, we're the ones who actually, who like that story actually saved us from a hellish future to a, to a, a heavenly eternal one, so like we should be like, this is amazing. I want to spend my life thinking, meditating, working this out into my own life. Angels who the gospel does not even affect are like, this is incredible. That you and I should have a spirit towards the gospel of holding fast because this is completely unbelievable. And I'm going to say more about that, but, but that's going to lead us into the fourth thing Paul says which is, it's more about himself, but I think it applies to us, uh, that enjoy, be poured out for others. That Paul uses this image of a drink offering. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, faith I'm glad and rejoice with you all. He's referring to a Hebrew way of worship, which is you would bring an offering to the Lord of a cup, and you would just pour out the cup onto the altar. And what that was a sign was of is, Lord, I am thankful before you, all the way down to the, to the emptiness of my, I could empty my soul out before you in thankfulness to you. And Paul uses that as a metaphor, actually, that his own life is a drink offering to the Lord by being poured out for others. Right? He's in prison right now. 
because he is a pastor who's gone and planted churches and poured his life out for others in service to Jesus. His plan is if he doesn't get executed and his life literally is poured out, his plan is to go right back at it. Go back to the Philippians to visit them, to encourage them. His life is a life poured out for others. And that is, listen, you want to work your salvation out. That's the governing vision is that your life is to be poured out for others. And remember back with me to, the, to week one of the series when I defined joy. And said, joy is when someone is glad to be with you. Or you walk into a room and someone else lights up because they get to be with you. That's what joy is. And that's, again, Dr. Alan Shore's definition. But if, if that's true, then I think it's worth asking the question, what kind of person walks into a room and everyone else is glad to be with them? Is it someone who walks into a room and starts making demands about how everyone else needs to act and behave in order, now, now that I'm here, this is what you must do? My guess is no. Right? Those are the people, when you call them, you look, and it's like, I'm, I'm good, I'll call them back tomorrow. Right? It's, it's, that's those people. So if you want other people's face to light up towards you, the best way to do that is that when you walk into the room, they know someone has just walked into the room who is ready to give and be poured out for, for, the, for the other in, in the room. If you want people's face to light up when you walk up, when you walk into the room, the way to do that is to be someone who pours their life out for others. And I recognize that that creates a tension, right? Because we, we believe ultimately that what, what really brings us joy is when we are filled. When we, have, when, we ha- when we get our way, when, we get, when things go the way we want them to go, we continually come back to the way I, I will be happy is if I get the things that I want. Even though every social sci- scientific study has shown that doesn't happen, it doesn't work, circumstances don't bring you happiness, things that you want to have in you, they're, they're not going to make you long-term happy. We know that scientifically it's not true. And yet that continues to be how we, how we pursue joy. But the way to walk into a room and know that other faces, the faces in the room will light up to see you is that you know your life is for them. We have to undo a lot of cultural work to get to that feeling because the reality is no one in this room, me included, actually believes that. I, when I walk in the room, that the only way I'll be happy is if you, Tim, what, how can we help you right now? How can we serve you? That's what we all, because that's what our culture teaches us. And yet Paul here says, my life's a drink offering. And I am glad and full of joy and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, Rosaria Butterfield in her book on hospitality says, faith in Jesus foregrounds the trust that says, I love my neighbor because she is mine. And not because she loves me back. Right? I walk into a room and my, my posture is not love me back. My posture is you're mine. And I'm, I'm here to have my life poured out for you. And maybe you hear that and you think, I, Tim, I just don't. I don't have the reserves for that. The idea that I'm going to pour my life out for others. I need, I need someone to pour in to me. I need a good cup of coffee, a Netflix show, and a nap. That's what I need. And may, sometimes you do need that. To be clear. But the way, the, way, the way to a life where I actually convince myself that me being poured out for others is actually my joy, the only way to do that is to go back to point three, is to hold fast to the gospel. That, that, is, that our story, that's the center of our reality, right? If God is the creator, sustainer of the universe, then the center of our reality 
is not a God who says, hey, everybody, you better, you better serve me. My, your life's for me. You're my servants. You better do what I say. But it, a God who, whose mind of Christ was to deny those rights, to abandon them, and to, to serve us, to take on the form of a servant, to go to death, to become obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And remember what Joseph said last week, which is really important. Jesus didn't do that because he sat up in heaven like flipping a coin and he lost. No, it's because he was God, he emptied himself of his own rights, his own prerogatives, his own privileges to serve others. That's what God is like. It's why we worship, and as Christians, we worship a trinity. Right? We don't worship a one-person God. We worship a three-person God who exists in communion with one another, each lowering themselves to lift the other into eternity. That's what, that's what reality is. And if you want to tap into fundamental reality, if you want to tap into joy itself, which is God, the way to do that is to pour yourself out for others. And the way to become convinced that you can pour yourself out for others is you have to live in the reality endlessly that Jesus has poured himself out for you. And Jesus, again, is not some interesting peasant Galilean from 2,000 years ago. He's the creator of the universe. And so as we close, I just want to read some words from Indy Wilson in his book, Death by Living, who just, I think, powerfully creates who God is. He's a crea- he is the creator, and he created you and I. And that's the being who emptied himself of his rights privileges to enter into our world. Here's what Indy Wilson writes. He says, a creative God, a God without whom none of this would be, A God who spoke reality into being and shapes it even now, he has authority. This world is his, and you are his. The way my words are mine. We are dust, spoken from nothing, shaped with the moisture of his breath, named and now living. Right? We were spoken into existence by this God, and even though he spoke us and we owed all of ourselves to him, We abandoned him, went our own way. And even then, his answer and his response was to do what God does, which was to continue to empty himself of his own privileges and rights, to enter into our world, and to be poured out as a drink offering on the cross. His blood poured out for us, emptied out completely, so that you and I could know this morning, if you're worn out, you can't serve other people, you're just tired, and your people have worn you down, and you can't do it anymore, that's okay. Come back to the cross and see Jesus being poured out for you. Remember, he named you. He breathed you into existence. He spoke you into this world. He's given his very life for you. And until you drink deeply enough from that well, you'll never be ready to go and live the life Paul talks about. And so now, for the rest of this morning, I just want to invite you to to come and drink deeply from his well. Let's pray. Father, as we, as, we, as we meditate on this gospel, as we try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with, with awe that we bear the name of Jesus into our world, God, it all has to start with us seeing in the fullness of our being Jesus giving up himself for us, him being poured out as a drink offering for us. God, our desire as a community is ultimately to represent that to the world, a, a people who live lives not of our own privilege, not of our own desires, not of our own rights first, but to, to actually to empty those things out, to open our tables, to open our lives 
up in love to our world because the only way we could ever do that in a meaningfully good way that doesn't destroy us and break us and have us fall into legalism, the only way to do that is if we just live at the table of your gospel. And so as we sing, um, we prepare to take communion in a moment. God, invite us to your table and may we meet Jesus there. In his name we pray, amen.